So good to hear from Francis and the team members in Czech Republic. It sounds like they're having a wonderful time of ministry and fellowship and it's a fun time together. I realize um, as 2005, um, time is quickly passing us by. Life is short and people are dying all over the world. So urgency of the gospel is greater now than ever before. So... Uh, we praise God for the work that the team is doing now, and such opportunities are available for you. This summer, we hope to send out teams uh, all over this world, uh, two to three week periods, to proclaim the gospel and minister to the saints, to the lost. What, a, what an opportunity, what um, a way to uh, redeem your time, your vacation days, or your uh, vacation from school. Uh, for the cause of the gospel. We have a special dispensation for couples and couples with children. You, have, you go to the front of the line in terms of um, being accepted to summer missions. So encourage all the families out there um, to, to really prayerfully consider um, ministering overseas this summer. Well, we're back in John 14. We were we were last here about two, three months ago, so it's incumbent upon us to do a, quite a bit of review to get our bearings straight and rightly understand the promises that Christ gave to His disciples and therefore to all of us. If you go to John chapter 12, you need to know that there is a key transition between these two chapters. In John chapters 1 through 12, the Apostle records our Lord's public ministry. Starting from chapter 13 all the way to the end of chapter 17, John records our Lord's private ministry. From this point on, chapter 12, verse 36, our Lord steps back from the crowds. He recuses Himself from public ministry and he focuses completely on his disciples, preparing them for his death on the cross. In John 13, if you remember, he washed their feet. He established the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. During that meal, he called Judas out as the one who would betray him. And then he called out Peter and told him that he would deny the Lord, not just once, not twice, but Peter, the leader of the group, would indeed deny him three times. As we come upon chapter 14, we find our Lord in His most intimate um, dialogue, in His most intimate fellowship with His disciples. Again, it is Thursday night. Uh, within 12 hours, He will be hanging on the cross. This is our Lord's final instructions before His death. John 14 is somewhat uh, clear in terms of its major theme. It has a singular theme. It is sandwiched with the same words of Christ, and that makes it obvious. Verse 1 and verse 27, Christ says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Again in verse 27, Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. 
The word troubled means to not let your hearts be anxious, agitated, distressed, discouraged, disturbed. It is in the passive voice, meaning do not allow your hearts to be affected from something that is outside and cause you to be disheartened, cause you to lose hope. It is in the imperative mood, so therefore it is a command. Our Lord commands the disciples, do not allow yourselves, do not allow your souls, your hearts to be distressed. Now in our studies of the Gospel of John, this word troubled has come out a few times, several times. In John 11.33, the first time we saw this word was when Christ saw Mary and Martha and saw Mary's um, tender tears as she wept over her brother's death. And as he saw her heart and he saw her weeping, it says that he was deeply moved. The Lord was. And he was troubled. In John 12.27, as he considered the cross, and considered the significance, considered the experience of being separated from God the Father and enduring the wrath of God, experiencing God's anger and indignation. Jesus said, My heart is troubled. And in John thirteen twenty one, he was troubled when he talked about Judas, that a man, his brother, his friend, loyal companion, just the just idea that this man would betray him as a hypocrite troubled our Lord greatly. So we see our Lord with each step to the cross. His heart was more and more troubled. The anguish and sorrow in our Lord's heart increased. Yet at the same time, when He talks to His disciples, He commands them. He com- comforts them. He commands them to not be troubled. We see an insight into our Lord's character, to the kind of man He was and He is. He is indeed the Good Shepherd. His heart is breaking. His heart is torn apart. And yet He turns to His disciples and He's not complaining. He's not grumbling or He's not self-centered. He's not calling them to cater to Him, minister to Him. No, he turns to them and he encourages, exhorts, and comforts them. His exhortation here is based on love of the most tender and self-forgetful character. The agonizing shepherd, as he faces the cross, he comforts others. And I believe, and you would agree with me, that this is more difficult than washing feet. You can wash somebody's feet with a grumbling heart with an angry heart, with an indignant heart. You can get on your knees and wash someone's feet that are dirty and smelly. But to do this, to say this, and to comfort His disciples, takes a heart that is truly humble, a heart that is truly uh, selfless, and concerned for others. Our Lord, He turns to them and He comforts them and He commands them. He says, not let your hearts be troubled. Now, what could be troubling these disciples? What could be agitating them, disturbing them, discouraging them? From our text, we found out, if you remember, three um, unique causes of the distress in these disciples' hearts. 
three unique sources of distress. First is our Lord's words that He's going to leave them. Being left behind. Physical separation from Christ. You know, every time in the Gospel record, Jesus mentions this, they got angry. Will you stop talking like that? You're being a pessimist. You need to be optimistic, Jesus. You need to have self-esteem. You need to be self-confident. You're the king. You're the Messiah. You're going to rule forever. God promised that to David's life. And you are him. No more this talking about you dying. No more this talking about you leaving. Just end that talk. And every time you said those words, it caused them heartache. And then in John 13, 33, little children, yet I, a little while I am with you, you will see me. John 8, 33, you will seek me, but where I'm going, you cannot come. And they were indignant, they were sorrowful. What do you mean? Why are you leaving us? And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, verse 36, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, Peter, you cannot come with me. And then Peter said, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Even if it means my life, I'd rather die with you than to be separate from you, Lord. And you, gotta, you have to love Peter's heart, right? You've got to read that and say, Peter, you know, all the things you've done wrong, you know, there, I, 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 I understand your heart. That is my heart. That is the heart of all true Christians, is it not? We want to be with Christ. We don't want to be left behind. We want to be with Christ in heaven. It is the nature of love to desire to be with the object that is loved. Thomas Vincent said, The Christian soul sweetly rests and rejoices in Christ's presence and love. This longing, this love belongs only to Christians. The world does not long for Christ because the world does not love Christ. Not because Jesus lacks beauty and loveliness. No, the world does not long for Christ and love Christ because the world is blind. But faith has opened our eyes who were once also blind. Now all believers clearly apprehend the sheer beauty, the purity, the attractiveness of Christ and therefore we are irresistibly drawn to Him. End quote. So because we love Christ, we want to be with Him. I mean, you've experienced that as you battle sin, as you battle persecution in this world, as you read the Scriptures, you cry out, Oh, Jesus, come. You come to me or I want to go to you. That's what Peter said. Why can't I follow you now? Why do we have to go separate ways? And in fact, Apostle Paul, Philippians 1, he said, I'm torn between the two. I can stay and minister to you, which is better for you. But my desire is... To die, or to me, to die is gain, because to die is to be present with the Lord. I know that the instant I, I breathe my last breath, in that next instant, that next moment, I'll see the Lord, I'll be with Him forever. Well, this caused these disciples much sorrow and heartache, as Christ told them, well, I'm leaving, and you cannot come with me. The second cause of trouble in the heart of believers is... The failure of other believers. Failure of other believers. John 13 and 14 are directly connected. They're in the same room. 
same dialogue, same thought. Notice John 14.1 has no connecting word. There is no transition. No comment by John such as Jesus also said. No, in the original, it is one scene. It is one continuous scene. These chapter numbers are put in hundreds of years later by someone else. So it's the same thought. And these disciples heard about Judas betraying, being one, one of them betraying the Lord. And then they heard Peter, their leader. They heard for themselves that Peter, the leader of the group, will deny the Lord three times. And without a, without a doubt, this caused their hearts to sing, sink. This is a unique source of sorrow in the heart of believers, is it not? When we hear of fellow Christians who are straying, they're not falling away, they're running away from Christ. You ever hear of your old Sunday school teacher, now in sin? Or maybe even your old youth pastor is in blatant sin? What about you hear Christian leaders, church leaders, Bible study leaders, maybe even pastors fall away? If you're a Christian, that breaks your heart. That causes you to be filled with sorrow. It causes you to say, hey, if that guy goes into sin, if Satan can tempt him away, if he was never, if she was never a Christian in the first place, then what about me? Who am I to say that I'm a believer, that I'm growing in the Lord? This is the source of much sadness in my life. And a source of much sadness in all believers, in, in all ministers of Christ, once in a while, very often I get emails from, from leaders of our church, or I get phone calls, or I meet with people, and they share with me, I'm ministering to this guy, and he's walking away from the Lord. What do I do, James? I'm ministering to this sister, and she doesn't care. Man, she once professed faith so strongly, and now her heart is just barren, it's empty, and they're just near tears or in tears, because other believers are no longer walking with Christ. I don't have the answers. I don't have a magic formula. I can't take out, okay, use this verse. It's a special verse that I use in such you know, instances. You know, use it carefully, but when you use it, it works 100% of the time. No, I don't have such teachings, such sermons or, or verses in, in my arsenal. All I can do is grieve with them. And pray with them, because that is the reality. And that is what causes sorrow to many believers. This is true in the New Testament times. Third John 1, 3, John said, I have no greater joy. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Children, not in the physical, literal sense. Children in the Christian sense. He said, my highest joy in life is when I hear that Christians are following Christ. If that is true, then the opposite must also be true. There is no greater sorrow in life for Christians. There is no greater heartache or agony when we hear that Christians are not walking with Christ. That is the height of sorrow. The valleys of despair when we hear believers straying away from the Good Shepherd, these valleys are indeed low. I mean, a good way to gauge your own Christian 
you know, character, your own heart for Christ, heart for, the, heart for others, is ask yourself, what is your joy in life? And what is your heartache? What causes you sorrow? And why do you get all amped up and you just rant and rave and start just huffing and puffing? What, what causes that kind of re- reaction in your life? Is it money? Like you lose like 10 bucks and you just, your whole week is shot, right? Or somebody cuts you off. Or you get a bad grade. Or somebody treats you, you know, in a wrong way. Or, you know, whatever. You have a bad hair day and you're just like, just, you know, grieving. Well, that shows what you cherish in life. So just figure out what, what, what causes you joy. And what causes you sadness. That re- reveals your heart. That's your idol. Right? But if you love the Lord, you love God's people, there is no greater joy than to see believers walking in the Lord. No greater sadness than believers falling away. Well, the third reason for their trouble, and this is, I believe, the greatest reason for their trouble, more than the physical absence of Christ, more than other believers running away from the Lord, the greatest reason for sorrow in our hearts is our own failings, our own sins, our own evil and wickedness that is in our own hearts. Think about it. What was Peter thinking? I mean, Peter was brash, he was prideful, he was self-confident, but he must have thought about what Jesus just said. Jesus just told him, Peter, within a few hours, you'll deny me three times. Can you imagine the trouble and confusion that must have flooded his heart? And you know what? It actually happened. So a few hours later, Peter denied the Lord before a servant girl first time, another servant girl, before the crowds. I don't know the man. And after he had denied the third, third time, the rooster crowed. And at that instant, Luke 22 tells us that Christ, with his face bloodied, face marked with the saliva of other his persecutors, he looked across the courtyard and he saw Peter and their eyes met. Luke records that. Who told this to Luke? Peter did. Peter is the one who relayed this account to Luke. And Luke, the doctor, recorded it on paper. So Peter said, you know what? When that happened, I saw Jesus and I saw his eyes. And I remembered his his words that I would deny the Lord three times. And it says that Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. He wept bitter tears because he denied the Lord whom he loved. And this is the greatest cause, greatest source of trouble in a believer's heart. More than Christ's separation, separation from Christ, more than other believers, the reality that we sin, the reality that we deny the Lord, the reality that because of our pride, our selfishness, greed, self-confidence, so on and so on, we sit against the one whom we love. As we see Christ clearer and clearer as you grow in faith, we see our sins more vividly. And such visions of our own depravity causes us much despair. And so these disciples, they're pretty discouraged. They're confused. Christ is leaving us. We're straying. And if you're Peter, you're the one who's denied the Lord three times. That is why Christ knows 
the condition of these men's hearts and he says, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. The English translation, some versions don't have it right. That first three words, believe in God, it's a, a statement of reality. They are, these men are faithful Jews. They already believe in God. They're theists. They believe in God's promises. What our Lord is saying is, you believe in God's promises. Believe in my promises. This will cure. This will comfort. This will strengthen your troubled hearts. And so we launched into this study of Christ's promises to His disciples. Christ promises to us that in times of our heartache, times of our difficulty, we can hold on to His promises. Saying, Jesus, in John 14, You promised. And You're a God of promises. You're faithful. You are true. These promises give us hope. What was the first promise found in verse 2? Christ said, I'm going away, but it's a temporary separation. Even a young child, when we tell our daughter, Elizabeth, just for a few hours, mom and dad will be going, will be coming back. Even a two-year-old daughter can understand, okay, I could hang out for a few hours. For disciples, Christ didn't say it's a permanent separation. He says, I'm going away, but I'm going away because my father's house, it's a many mansions. And I'm going, to, going there to prepare a place for you. Individually, that's singular. I'm going to have a place for each one of you. And when I'm done, I will come back. And then when I come back, I will call you to myself and we'll be together forever. That's the first promise. What a glorious promise. That this separation is temporary. This agony, this heartache that we're experiencing as pilgrims, sojourners on earth, it is not permanent. One day, we'll hear the voice of the archangel, we'll hear the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we, are, we who are still alive will be caught up with the Lord in the air to be with Him forever. First promise. Great. Second promise. Verse 6, I am the way to the Father. I am the way. People will tell you, no, follow this, follow this, go this way, go that way. They'll reject you, persecute you, and say you're going the wrong way. Jesus says, no, trust me, I am the way. You follow me, and I'll lead you to God. I will lead you to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Promise 3, verse 13, promise of answered prayer. Though we are physically separated, I can still hear you. Though we're physically separated, my eyes will be upon you and my ears will be attentive to your prayers. And so whatever you ask in my name, I will answer you. What a promise. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Promise 4, the promise of the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father and He will give you another paraclete to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. You know Him. He dwells with you and He will be in you. Promise of the Holy Spirit that Christ will send Him. He will be our paraclete. He will be our helper. And unlike the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit would leave every time a person sinned, not in the New Covenant, not 
after the cross, the Holy Spirit will dwell in us forever. We, would, we no longer have to feel like David, do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. When he committed his sin with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, he was fearful that God would leave him. Christians, no fear of that, because he will dwell within us. And that launched us into a seven-part, eight-part study in the Holy Spirit. Important, very important, because Jesus is gone. I you know, hope you guys know that. He's not here. We are under the custodialship, under the care, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit now. So it is incumbent, it is imperative, it is essential that believers understand the person, the role, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So today, here we have the final promise. The last promise given to us in John 14, the promise is, the promise is found in verses 18 through 20. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I, myself, will come to you. I will come to you. Oh, you might think, hey, yeah, I know. You're going to come back. You told us that in verse 3, right? What is this? Like, this is a rehashed promise. I want another promise. This promise is different in that verse 3 was talking about his physical return in the second coming. But here, he is not referring to his second coming, but the promise that he himself will return, not physically, but spiritually, through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. In a little while, the world will see me no more. Why? Because he'll be gone. Right? He will leave the earth. Right? That is why, I think the disciples understood this. They, they, none of the disciples drew a picture of Jesus. They, you know, you would think, right? Anyone else try to draw something to kind of, this is what he looked like. No disciples did that because they understood that Christ is coming right back. But his return is a spiritual return. And it would, it, 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 physical presence of Christ is of no significance. The world will no longer see Christ. He is gone. But Christ promised, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. Christ promised he will come back, not physically, but spiritually. He will come back spiritually. Now, how will this happen? Some dear believers think that Christ came back through visions. Right? You will have visions like Isaiah went to the temple at Isaiah 6 and saw the glory of God. So, well, many Christians go to the mountains and pray for hours, which is, you know, a good thing, but they're going to see a vision. Or some Christians think, oh, Christ came to me in a dream. And, you know, he gave me a hug and, you know, he gave me a pat on the back and said, good job, Jim Shin, keep it going. And that's how Jesus, you know, I see Jesus now. Or some, you know, many Christians have a heavenly experience, some divine experience. They go to heaven, they go to hell, they take a tour of the universe, and that's how Jesus you know, manifest himself. Right. One more. You know, some believers, you know, still small voice. And you pray and just listen and you know, Jesus will speak to you. He'll talk to you. And that's, that's Jesus. That's God talking. That's God speaking. That is not the Lord's promise. Christ tells us, tells, pulls the disciples and tells us, He will return through the Holy Spirit by the Word of God. By the Word of God. The theme of this section 
One of the major themes that comes again and again is Jesus' words. His commandments. God's commands. Look at verse 15. My commandments. Verse 17. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. Verse 21. My commandments. Verse 23. My words. Singular. Verse 24. My words. Plural. Verse 24. When you, word you hear is not mine, but the Father's. Verse 25, I have spoken to you. And then verse 26, it culminates by saying, by Christ saying that my words, my teachings are so important that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will teach you all things. And He will remind you, He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then you will put it down on paper. And this is a record of my words, of my teachings. And this is how I will come to you. This is how you will see me. This is how we will commune together. This is how the Father and I will abide in you. This is how we will have a relationship. This is how the Lord will manifest himself to his people. This is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. Quote, by the power of the Holy Spirit, He makes His Word so luminous that as we read it, He Himself draws near. The whole biography of Jesus, of the Gospels, becomes in this way a precious reality. We see His form. We hear His words. It is through His written Word that the incarnate Word, quote, manifests himself to the heart. Our Lord is saying that He will no longer reveal Himself physically and visibly to this world, but He will reveal Himself spiritually to His disciples through the Word of God. 1 John 1, 1, 2, and 3. Listen to what the Apostle John says, said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. John doesn't say, we, pro- we, we have seen Jesus, we have heard Him, we have touched Him. Now do it for yourselves. Right? See Jesus, touch Jesus, right? experience Jesus. He doesn't do that. He realized Jesus is gone. Now Jesus reveals Himself, not through the physical senses, not through visions or dreams, He says, we proclaim Jesus to you. And through the proclaimed word, you can have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father. Same exact thing in Hebrews 1, 1, 2, and 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and in various ways, through dreams, through visions, through the spoken word. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ, 
Verse 3, He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of His being. And He sustains all things by His powerful Word. It is through the message of Christ in Word that we see and hear of Christ and know of Christ. This is important. This is radical. This was the truth that was recovered in the Reformation. This one truth was the turning point in human history. This discovery was also the turning point for Martin Luther. This was his grand discovery. His personal reformation began when he understood that God reveals himself not through the Pope. God speaks not through the church, not through the councils or creeds, that to see Jesus, experience Jesus, is not through communion, not through the bread or the cup. Luther discovered that God reveals Himself in a book, that the Word of God comes to us in an external book, in Logos. Luther grasped this powerful fact that God preserves the experience of salvation and holiness from generation to generation. And how does God do that? He does it by means of a book of revelation. Not a bishop in Rome, not visions and experiences of men like Thomas Munzer or the Zikau prophets. The Word of God comes to us in a book. And the implications of this simple truth are tremendous. In 1539, when he was commenting on Psalm 119, Luther wrote, quote, In this psalm, David always says that he will speak, think, talk, hear, read, day and night constantly about nothing else than God's Word and God's commandments. For God wants to give you His Spirit and knowledge of Himself only through the external Word, end quote. Again, just for emphasis, he's saying that Jesus comes to us. That you and I, we see Jesus. We experience Him. We experience Him. We know Him. He manifests Himself to us. Not through the Pope. Not through the church. Not through any other thing except the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Luther said with resounding forcefulness in 1545, in the year before he died, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. This is how Christ manifests Himself today. Who are the recipients of this promise? Who are the ones who will see Jesus, experience Him? Verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will manifest myself to him. Here we find an important criterion to see Jesus in the Word of God. The manifestation of Christ is not given to those who are smart or academic or intellectual who love to read, study and meditate. So long as you read, study, and meditate on the Word of God, you will know Jesus and experience Him personally. That's not what Jesus says. He says, no. I will manifest myself to those who truly love me. 
Who are those who truly love me? Those who have my commandments and keep my commandments. Those who obey. Now in verse 22, Judas, the other Judas, Jude, the brother of James, he says, why will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus says, no, 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 you got it wrong again. Anyone, whoever, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And in fact, my father will come with me and we'll make our home with him. And verse 24, the converse is true. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The other opposite is true and it must be noted. A direct connectedness between love and obedience. True faith obeys Christ. True love obeys Christ. And obedience is the proof of true love for Christ. And this is the criterion. People say, James, I'm reading the Bible like day and night. I've been a Christian for 10 years. I listen to your sermons. I go to flock. I go to retreat. I read Christian book after Christian book, but I don't, I don't see Jesus. I'm not growing. My heart, my passion, my heat for the Lord it's not growing in my heart. Why is that? Well, it doesn't say I will manifest, manifest myself to those who read my book, read my words. I will manifest myself to those who know my commandments. I will manifest myself to those who keep, who obey my commandments. That is a sign of true love for Christ. And that is to whom our Lord will reveal himself. It's eye-opening because the word love connotes in this world, in our society, idea of this romantic feeling, this emotional uh, mindset. Coming to church this morning on K-Way, they were singing a song, and the chorus was, "I'm so in love with Jesus. He is in so, and Jesus is so in love with me." And I was like, "This is the worst song to prepare my heart for today's sermon because it's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches." See, in the, in the world, love is, you fall in love with someone. This is emotion, this, this experience, this heart thing. But in the Bible, it's not. In fact, the Bible says, love for Christ is painful. It hurts. It, it results in suffering. Um, this past week, I was listening to, let me illustrate this. This past week, I was listening to Dennis Prager on 8.70 a.m., 9 to 12 uh, p.m. Recommend he's a conservative Jew, he's not a Christian. But from the Old Testament, he was teaching about homosexuality in the Bible, and how the Bible condemns homosexuality. And a guy called in, and he said, I'm a practicing homosexual. Everything I experience, everything I feel, tells me I'm a homosexual, and it's right to practice this but I'm also a conservative Christian. And up to this time, I have tailored the Word of God around my emotions, around my feeling, to justify who I am. After hearing your lecture about what the Bible says about homosexuality, I now say that God condemns homosexuality. The Bible is true. At the same time, I cannot deny my experience 
deny my emotions, deny my feelings. And then Prager responded by saying, I rarely say this, but I tell you, you are a great man. Because majority of people have emotions. And then they take the Bible and they have the Bible fit who they are to make themselves feel good. Rare is the man who will say, I'm a sinner. The Bible says, I'm a sinner. The Bible is true. And who I am, it's wrong in the midst of one's own sinfulness. That's what love for Christ is. We are sinners. In our hearts, we hate Christ. We hate God's commands. And because we love Christ, we repent of ourselves. We die to ourselves. We carry the cross. And we say, I am a sinner. I am wrong. God forgive me. I repent of who I am. It's not just what I do. It's who I am and I therefore I repent. And I seek to love you and obey your word. And Christ said, to anyone who does that, to anyone who will love me to the point of obedience to my commands, of hating himself or herself, our Lord promises, the Lord promised that he will reveal himself that he will manifest himself. This is why pursuing Christ is not about knowledge. It's not about just mere doctrine or theology. Knowing Christ is by way of obedience. We don't know Christ, discover Christ, experience Christ through experience or through academics. No, it is through obedience Some people think that they're godly because they minister a lot, because they're leaders, they serve a lot. Sometimes, I've preached so many times in a year. I've preached so often, or I'm a teacher, I'm a shepherd, therefore I know Christ. No. Knowledge in the world is acquired this way, but not with the Lord. There is only one way to have a personal, intimate, passionate, relationship with Christ. There's only one way. It's loving Christ through obedience to His written words. only one way. You're sitting here this morning and you feel like a spiritual atheist. Outwardly, you know, you're busy with frenzied activity. But in your heart, Christ is not there. The question you need to ask then is, are you obeying God's word? Are you obeying the Scriptures? Because Christ promised if you do, He will manifest Himself to you. If Christ is not alive in you, it could only mean one thing. It could only mean one thing. It cannot mean Christ failed in His promise. It could only mean that you are failing to obey. You are busy with activity. You're busy with external things. You're busy with religion. You're above reproach in the eyes of man. But in the eyes of God, you're not obeying Him. To obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15.22 What does God want? God wants us to obey Him as a fruit of our love for Him. And then the results of the believer is twofold. Verse 27 My peace I leave with you. My peace 
I give to you. We believe here it is a double peace, a peace that is left, a peace that is given. In the New Testament sense, peace is spoken in terms of reconciliation between two warring parties and also an internal uh, state of tranquility, internal state of just um, hope and wholeness. Christ is talking about both. I'm leaving you my peace. Peace that I have with God the Father, I leave it to you. So as you trust in me, war is over. You have peace with God, Romans 5.1, through my death. You've been reconciled to God. Also, I give you my peace. Through the promises, I give you my peace, which can calm troubled hearts. One was for the conscience, the other for the heart. Well, five precious promises from John 14. I will come back for you. I am the way to the Father. I will answer your prayers after my name. The promise of the Holy Spirit. And the final one today. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Christ is faithful to His promises. If only we would believe in Him and follow in His paths. Make, let's make 2005 a year where we cling and hold on to these precious promises given to Christ, given from Christ to us before His death. Let's pray. If I may give you just a minute to respond to the Word of God in terms of how you are pursuing Christ this day. Are you pursuing Christ just intellectually? Are you pursuing Christ just externally? Or seeking some kind of experience? Or are you seeking Christ as Christ intended? Loving Him through obedience to His Word. That's what He promised, that He will manifest Himself. He will prove Himself real to you as you do that. Let's go to the Lord and resolve in our hearts to be men and women who love Him by obeying His commands. Oh, Heavenly Father, my heart is weighed down because I know for many of us here, in terms of our Christian lives, there was much heat but very little light for many of us at Cornerstone. A lot of activity, a lot of events, a lot of uh, outward form of godliness, but lacking the power of obedience to you. That many of us are Marthas, very few Marys here in our church. And so we live empty lives, our hearts are empty our hearts are not filled with the living Christ, living Lord, all because we're living Christianity outside in rather than loving you uh, biblically, loving you genuinely and truly by simply holding to your commands, obeying your word so that you will make your home with us so you, you will reveal yourself to us personally, intimately, in our, 
in our hearts. Oh God, why are so many of us afraid to just simply obey? Why are we so hesitant to, with all our lives, follow you, to hate ourselves, to hate our sins, to acknowledge your truth in the midst of our sinfulness, and to worship and, and honor you. Oh Lord, you would drive away the cowards that are in our hearts, Lord, the cowardice and the fear of man and the fear of, fear of life and cause us with humble boldness to passionately pursue you by obeying all your commands, all your precepts, all your truths, Lord. We will submit ourselves completely so that we would know the joy. We would firsthand know the joy, the sweetness of fellowship with your Son, Jesus Christ. May you grant us, Lord, much freedom this year to commune with Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.